Hey, everybody, it's Pete. First things first, let's do a quick check-in with yourselves. I've been watching the news, doing my best to stay informed from trusted sources, keeping safe distance from social media. Pandemic isn't getting any better, and you might not be able to smell it yet, but there's actually hope in the air. It'll be a spell before we get any relief from this thing, and we're going to have to endure much on this road, care for ourselves and one another with grace and compassion. And after that, we get the hugs back. So hold steady, be a light in the universe, acknowledge the hard, and do your best to be the easy for others. We have a light on the show today, and he happens to be a trusted source, too. His area of expertise is the other pandemic, the one that comes in and out of focus in striking competition with the disease state we're living through. For our guest, it started with a big question. How many people have been killed by police? If you visit the ultimate fruit of his labor, mappingpoliceviolence.org, you'll find that in 2020, our police have killed 986 people in our country. Prior to mapping police violence and his team's efforts to collect and tabulate this data, there was no effort on behalf of our national leaders to collect or report it themselves. The man behind the project is Sam Sinyangwe. He's a data scientist and policy analyst. And in addition to mapping police violence, he also founded Campaign Zero and the Police Scorecard. He's a policy vet where, according to his official bio, he worked to connect 61 federally funded communities to research-based strategies to build cradle-to-career systems and support for low-income families. He's also helped city leaders, youth activists, and community organizations to develop citywide agendas to achieve quality education, health, and justice for young black men. Why his pivot to policing and presenting municipalities with the data that serves to change behavior? We can't live. We can't learn, he says. Our deep thanks to Sam for his time to sit down with Dodge and present the data. And thanks to you, as always, for your commitment to the work. And now, Samson Yangwei and Dodge Ray. Thank you very much for being here, Sam. I've been really excited about this interview for weeks. It's good to be here. Your story starts on August 9th, 2014. Take us back to that time and what shifted for you that day. Yeah, so August 9th, 2014 was the day that Mike Brown was killed by police in Ferguson, Missouri. You know, in the ensuing days and weeks and months after that day, uh, the national conversation shifted dramatically. You know, as a country, we began talking about systemic racism, particularly in policing and criminal justice. And at the time, I was working at an organization called PolicyLink in Oakland. Um, I was working on issues of educational inequity, helping uh, to build out data systems that could hold schools and school systems and a whole host of community-based organizations and stakeholders accountable to a set of common metrics um, that could improve academic performance, uh, safety, um, healthy eating, active living, um, and a whole host of other 
uh, indicators that matter for kids and families in poverty. Uh, and my, my job was to help support 61 federally funded communities to build out those data systems in ways uh, that they could track progress towards closing opportunity gaps in education. And, uh, you know, as, as you said, my life changed on August 9th because it became very clear that while, you know, I remain uh, committed to and believe in educational equity, um, you know, the, the truth is that if we can't live, we can't learn and that there's something fundamental about the, the right to be alive, particularly as a black person in America, that is uh, something that is fundamental and has to be addressed so that we can then open up opportunities uh, for people to reach their full potential. So you took your background in data analytics, your Stanford University education, and you began a whole different life in a way. I mean, you really began to swing the power of data in a direction that incredibly it had not been applied before. Tell us what happened next. You know, at the time I was used to dealing with large data sets, complex data sets that uh, tracked outcomes by race and gender, um, that you could do deep dives in particular cities or states and better understand what the trend lines were where things were getting better, where things were not getting better. Um, and that sort of roadmap was you know, what I've been trained to use uh, to better understand what policies are working at achieving the goals uh, that the data can show us uh, that we're making progress towards and what policies are not working. And in the space of policing, it became clear very early on that we just didn't have the data to begin making data-driven decisions around what to do about this crisis. And so, and the reason for that is that the federal government, even to this day, doesn't collect comprehensive data on people who are killed by the police, uh, let alone a whole host of other police interactions uh, that happen much more frequently and that can also be harmful. You know, the data didn't exist. Uh, and in the absence of that, uh, you know, it became clear that, I, that in order for us to apply a rigorous data-driven lens to this problem, which I believe is important, we needed to collect the data first. And so my work became focused on collecting that data through local media reports, through public records requests to police agencies, um, through looking at obituaries and information that was published online or on social media, uh, through connections with local community organizations across the country, beginning to build the most comprehensive database of people killed by police in the United States, uh, which we launched in um, March of 2015. So again, this was a, a massive process that took four months or so, you know, really from start to finish, you know, from project idea, ideation to execution and launch of mappingpoliceviolence.org, um, where we started by uh, launching data on um, over 1,100 people um, who were killed by police per year. We had data on 2014, had data on 2013, collected data on 2015 in real time. We've been collecting data ever since. Uh, and now we have uh, over 8,000 cases of people killed by police in the United States during that time period from 2013 through the present. Um, and we've begun to think differently about this issue because now we have the data that we lacked before. Um, we now know which places uh, are hotspots of police violence across the country. We know that places like St. Louis, uh, even Orlando, Florida, where I'm from, uh, Oklahoma City and Phoenix have among the highest rates of killings by police in the country, uh, and that there are cities where the police don't kill people. Um, that Irvine, California is the only city of the 100 largest cities in America where the police didn't kill anybody during the 2013 uh, through 2019 time period. Um, and there are a host of other cities like Detroit and others that had lower rates of killings than the national average. Um, so that's the data that we're able to collect, um, you know, leading this project to collect all this data across the country, working with local organizers in Ferguson and across the country to compile this. 
Um, and now we have the information that has been helpful uh, towards moving policies at every level of government uh, in the years since. So before we go into where that data has taken you, I'm just a little fascinated that the data hadn't hadn't been collected before a young man in his 20s came along and said, gosh, maybe we should know what's actually happening out there. So, for example, here's some things you can find pretty easily on the Internet if you go and look them up. The number of people who die each year by falling into a swimming pool. That's already tracked. The annual murders by steam, hot vapors or hot objects. This is a known data set. The number of people killed falling off a ladder every year, drivers killed in collisions with railway trains, and the number of females in New York who died by slipping or tripping, all data we already had. So it's kind of stunning that the number of people who died in police custody or at the hands of police force, whatever the explanation, seems like something we would have known by now. What do you make of that? Yeah, there's no excuse for it. There's really no excuse for it. Again, I mean, even on issues that are fairly similar in difficulty to collect the data in the decentralization of the data. So one of the big issues with collecting this data and one of the reasons that's been used to uh, one of the reasons it's been cited as to why the federal government isn't collecting comprehensive data is just the difficulty of collecting consistent and reliable information from 18,000 different law enforcement agencies across the country every year. But, you know, that's not a, a valid excuse because... Again, in, in education under the Obama administration, um, they collected data on every school in the country. You can go uh, the Office of Civil Rights Data Collection within the Department of Education, even still, despite the Trump administration not caring so much about these issues, even still, they post data on every school. You can do a deep dive into your child's school, what these school disciplinary disparities are by race or gender or disability status, um, who's getting suspended in school, out of school, who's arrested at school. Um, but you know, once you're outside of the school grounds, you the amount of information you have on police contact and policing um, drops dramatically. Uh, and the federal government has, without any sort of enforcement power, um, relied on police agencies to report this data reliably every single year all across the country, and they just simply failed to do that. Um, so if you look in the federal database, uh, it has zero killings by police in Florida over the past several decades. And a simple Google search will show that that is not true. Now, to get over that problem uh, or to overcome that data collection hurdle, we had to collect the data outside of uh, sort of the, the government official sources. So we had to collect data from local media reports. Uh, if somebody is killed by the police, it's a homicide. It is almost always reported in the media somewhere if you can just find that report. And that's what we, we managed to do. Um, similarly, there, it, there's information in obituaries, uh, in a criminal, other criminal records databases, and other public health databases. So the data on uh, fatalities and who's dying by various diseases, uh, various um, causes of violence. Uh, there's some data there that's not being tracked in the criminal justice space. So it's sort of all over the place. And what we had to do was aggregate all of these disparate sources, pull them into one combined comprehensive set. Um, and then better understand what we're still missing, right? So, you know, when I say comprehensive, I mean, according to the best research estimates, we have more than 90% of the total number of people killed by police in our database. Wow. We are still missing some records, right? There are cases, if you are killed by the police in a very rural area where there are no witnesses, uh, there's not a local news station, um, and it's not reported, then it's unlikely that you'll be captured in any of the databases that exist. 
Um, so there continue to be some gaps, you know, nationwide. And we're just talking about the tip of the iceberg here with killings by police, the most sort of egregious form of police intervention. Um, but again, short of that, people who are non-fatally shot by the police or otherwise non-fatally injured, uh, people who are profiled, even if they don't have force directly used against them, all of that information, you know, the landscape federally of what's available is even worse than, than killings by police. Um, so we're really still in the beginning stages of, of fully understanding uh, the picture uh, when it comes to police violence. Um, but we definitely understand more, particularly about deadly force uh, than we did five years ago. Wow. Well, take us into what you're learning. Like, what what are you finding out? I've heard many uh, object to the the protests over especially the last decade saying it just seems like it's more people of color who get killed by police. It's not really true. Or maybe it's true, but it's really just because they are sadly living in areas of higher crime. And so it's one of these terrible collateral damage things. But it's really not about, you know, a systemic problem. Does that is that what the data is showing? So it's not what the data is showing. I think that's what's so uh, jarring about this whole process. Um, you know, walking into this, we had no data. And in the absence of data, it's these narratives that take hold, right? It is narratives that have never been backed by data, narratives that have never been proven empirically, but narratives that nevertheless have power uh, politically, narratives that have heft socially, things that everybody knows and everybody is familiar with these arguments and has to confront them. And without data, it's very hard to overcome those arguments. Data is how we can figure out what is true and what's not true. Um, so once we collected the data, we began to interrogate some of those uh, assumptions. Um, the first one that you mentioned is, is really widespread, this idea that you know, it started with this idea, you know, early on in 2014 and 15, the conversation was doubting whether or not there were any racial disparities in policing at all, right? There was this idea that maybe there's a problem in Baltimore or St. Louis, but we don't really think this is a nationwide problem. Then, you know, we began collecting more data, um, pretty clear given the data that not only we collected, but that, you know, a host of organizations played a role in different places in publicizing. And it became clear that, you know, indeed, Black people are more likely to be killed by the police per population. Um, nationwide, according to our database, about three times more likely to be killed by the police than white people. Uh, Latinos are about 1.5 times more likely to be killed by the police. Native Americans more likely to be killed by the police um, per population, right? So that's what we found. Track that all across the country. That is the norm and not the exception. Um, so then, you know, uh, as a attempt to sort of push back against that argument, it sort of shifted into this argument about, okay, we, we recognize that there are some disparities here. We recognize that Black people are more likely to be stopped by police or arrested or have uh, or killed by the police. But we believe that it is not because of anything the police are doing, but the police are merely responding to crime in particular areas because they're more likely to be in those areas and respond to crime and people are more likely to commit crime in those areas. Therefore, the police will end up using force as a response to that, um, but not in any way that was sort of unreasonable or unjustified. That was sort of the, the argument. And so we interrogated that, right? And, and what became very clear is that the fact that a community has a relatively high crime rate does not determine the likelihood that police will use violence against civilians. And that when you actually map out the crime rates and juxtapose those with the rates of police violence, there's not a very close connection there. In fact, what you see is that there are cities with very high crime rates, places like Newark, New Jersey, or Detroit, um, that actually have lower rates of 
police violence, the national average. And there are places that have relatively low rates of crime that have pretty high rates of police violence. I mentioned Orlando, Florida, you know, city that I'm from is not the most dangerous city in the country when it comes to crime. Um, it has the second highest rate of killings by police in the country. And so, you know, there's a lot of variation, you know, even when you're looking at the, the sort of most quote unquote dangerous cities in the country, the rates of police violence are all over the place. And so something else is determining how the police choose to show up and respond in communities that is different across communities. In some places, they are responding to places uh, or, or communities that do have high crime rates in ways that don't exacerbate that violence, that don't lead to further violence. In other places, they are responding in ways that do exacerbate that violence, in ways that, you know, you look at a place like Phoenix, one in five homicides committed in the entire city of Phoenix in 2018 was committed by a police officer. 20% of the... Yeah. Wow. So you have places where the police are actually responsible in some cities for a large share of the overall violence that's happening. So it really depends, you know, and there's not a... Um, so some of these overarching narratives that have been used often to halt progress or dispute whether there's a need for change, those narratives really fall apart when you interrogate them with the data. And that leads us into a different conversation, a conversation about why is it that police in these places are doing things in the same types of circumstances, the same difficult and challenging environments that police in other places are citing as an excuse. In some places, they're handling those situations in ways that don't result in civilians being killed. Um, and we have to learn from what they're doing in those places and scale that across the country so that we can achieve those types of results uh, nationwide. And that's the work that we've been doing through policy and practice change. I'm really impressed, first of all, that you've been able to put together a comprehensive data set where the federal government couldn't or wouldn't. And and let's give them a little credit. If we're generous about it, we can at least say this is a daunting task. Like it takes somebody with real experience around very complicated data to take such a thing on. Uh, so I kind of get that, though I don't think it's really okay. So first of all, amazing that you're, you've created the data. Second of all, that you're, you're starting to really look at, so what does this teach us about policy? It's not just showing us that sure enough, black and brown people are more likely than white people to be injured or killed. It's it's showing us that that happens regardless of whether it's a high crime city or not, and that there's there's something else going on. What are you learning about what else is going on? So this has been really fascinating, this process, because it's been you know five or six years now of examining data, trying to understand what's going on. And I'll say that there's a lot we don't know still, that this is really complicated. It is really hard. Um, there are no easy answers. And it's different by city and by state. And I think that's what's so tough about this because policing is so decentralized, you're essentially dealing with 18,000 different systems. And each of them has their own you know, police chief or sheriff in charge with their own employees, the demographics, the, a set of cultural values within the organization, within the police department, that a set of policies that can differ across departments around use of force, around accountability. So each city, each county, has very different dynamics that they're dealing with that make it difficult to make these sort of broad sweeping um, generalizations. That being said, there are some things that, that do appear to, to stand out when you look at these trends. One is, has to do with police interactions in the first place. So in the data that we have, we have more data on, on big cities than rural areas. And by more data, I mean 
in addition to killings by police, we have data on non-fatal shootings in big cities. We have some data on other types of force that are not police shootings. We have more data on accountability and civilian complaints of misconduct, what happens when you report officers for misconduct. So just the, the data universe around larger cities is better because they have more resources, they, they collect better data, they have better systems for collecting it and reporting it. The, you know, the uh, local politicians and communities tend to put a, a lot of pressure on them to publicize those data, there's been a lot of protests in big cities. And so it's changed sort of the way in which some departments have done business and decided to share data. But based on that data that has been shared, what we're seeing uh, is actually a pretty substantial reduction in police shootings in big cities since 2013. Pretty, pretty substantial. So, so again, our database goes back to 2013. So we have that range, 2013 through the present. And during that time period, uh, there's been about a 37% reduction in police shootings in the largest 30 cities in the country. Um, there's been a, so it's pretty substantial. And it's interesting because, you know, again, to this crime rates argument, crime rates have stayed pretty much the same. They, you know, 2013, they went down in 2014. They went up in 2015 and 16. They went down in 2017 and 18, 20 and 2019, 2020. It looks like they might go up a little bit again, but like by and large compared to, you know, before the 2000s, the nineties and the eighties, crime has been very pretty low and it's fluctuated a little bit, but not substantially. But police violence has changed pretty dramatically in some places. Um, so again, police have changed their approach. The, 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 the sort of circumstances and the underlying uh, dynamics in which the police are finding themselves and responding to have remained similar. But the approach and the outcomes have changed. And so the question is why? You know, what did they do differently during that time period? Um, what we found is that the places that have made the largest reductions in police shootings have also made substantial reductions in arrests, particularly for low-level offenses. Part of that is decriminalization of marijuana. But beyond that, uh, there are a host of low-level offenses that police have begun to stop so aggressively enforcing. Um, so their approach to it might be uh, a citation rather than arrest, or the approach might be a warning rather than the arrest, or helping somebody get treatment or services um, if they're dealing with addiction issues, if they're dealing with substance abuse, if they are homeless. A different approach than in the past, it would have been just arrest and incarcerate that person. Um, and we're seeing those big reductions in low-level arrests in big cities that have been forced to make those changes because of local activists who've been pushing for reforms. So in New York City, uh, a huge change has been uh, reducing stop and frisk under de Blasio. You see a huge reduction in stops overall and stop and frisk. You see a 62% reduction in low-level arrests in New York City since 2013, 62%, huge. Um, in, in some other cities, you see like Baltimore, it's been a 50% reduction. Uh, Chicago, it's been a dramatic reduction. LA, it's been about 50%. Um, so in many of the largest cities in the country, we're seeing, I mean, low-level arrests cut in half. And when I say low-level arrests, I mean the majority of arrests because nationwide, only 5% of all arrests that are made according to the FBI's data, 5% um, of all arrests are for violent crimes, 12% of all arrests are for property crimes. And the vast majority of the remainder are low-level arrests. Um, so these are, you know, arrests for drug possession, but not sales, just simple drug possession, arrests for things like, um, you know, having an open container of alcohol or trespassing or loitering, being outside on the sidewalk. Um, you know, if you're homeless, you don't have anywhere to live, then you can be arrested for trespassing or loitering. So a host of these things that really aren't about public safety, but are more about poverty, addiction, need, people who need help and are getting arrested instead. Um, so, so one of the things we know is if you reduce those arrest for low-level offenses, you create alternative pathways for people to get the help they need, 
uh, rather than incarceration. It re also reduces police violence. There are fewer opportunities that could then escalate to the use of force if police are no longer sort of coming in in a punitive way, arresting that person and creating that, those adversarial co uh, contacts. So that's one thing that we know, reduce the low-level arrests. Um, again, cities reduced those arrests. Crime rates didn't skyrocket. Um, this can be done safely. It is being done safely, frankly, all across the country. And similarly, uh, we also know that, that in addition to that, there are a set of things that also matter with regard to addressing police violence. The rules, the policies that govern how and when and how much force police can, can use in particular situations, use of force policies, those also matter. Um, so in some places, the police are banned from doing things like chokeholds or strangleholds. In some places, police are banned um, from uh, shooting at somebody in a vehicle. In some places, police are required to use de-escalation and alternatives to deadly force as a first response rather than shooting first and asking questions later. It turns out, and we did this analysis, we looked at use of force policies across the country. It turns out most police departments didn't have those standards in place. Um, and the, the places that didn't have those standards had lower, or rather the places that didn't have those standards and those restrictions on the use of force had higher rates of killings by police in the places that did have those restrictions. So just like in the gun violence space, you know, we talk about universal background checks and mandatory waiting periods and these types of restrictions that make it harder um, for people to buy and use, you know, really dangerous guns like AR-15s. In the police violence space, which is a form of gun violence, the solutions aren't that different. Um, restrict how and when the police can use guns. Um, you know, don't allow police to you know, shoot in situations where they could use alternatives. I mean, really common sense things that, that people, I guess, assume should, should have or were the rules, but really weren't when you look at the, the policies that were in place at the local and the state level. Um, those have now begun to change. You know, we've tracked hundreds of cities that have changed their use of force policies now um, in the past several months alone, partly in response to our advocacy and advocacy across the country. Um, so that's another area of change. Um, and then finally, the enforcement of those policies. Uh, you know, having these on paper is one thing. Uh, enforcing those policies, making sure that officers who violate those standards are disciplined or removed from the force, that's really important too. And we know that places that have police union contracts that obstruct investigations and discipline of officers, those places also have higher rates of police violence as well. Um, so, so those are some things that we do know. Reduce police contact overall. This is consistent with um, sort of the defund movement, right? Reducing the overall scope of policing in society and figuring out what are some alternative approaches to those things that we could be resourcing instead. And then in addition to that, recognizing the police aren't going away tomorrow, um, that there are a host of other things that can be adopted that restrict what police can or can't do in the short term and that hold them accountable and enforce those standards so that we can ultimately remove some of those offices that have the highest rates of use of force from the force. In, in a talk that we'll include in our show notes uh, earlier this year, you, you shared that there are, I think, something like eight different policies that you looked at according to the data and the impact it had on police action out there and ultimately on police violence and showed that when all eight were implemented, there was a 72% reduction in police violence within that force, if I heard you right. Yeah, so, so, um, so we found that the places that had more restrictive use of force policies were less likely, were less likely to kill people. More restrictive policies, less police violence. Um, and, you know, again, this is, you know, we're limited in what we could say with the data and the sample and all of that. You know, this is complicated. Um, but that's what we're seeing as a trend. I think the, the question is, you know, how do we 
can we prove causation? I mean, that's really difficult to do. Um, but again, I mean, this isn't the first study that is found, that study that we did. Um, but again, this is building on 40 years of academic literature that have found similar findings that the places with more restrictive policies had lower rates of not only deadly force, but also non-lethal force as well. And that's been borne out study after study. It's actually one of the things in the criminal justice research space that has the most research that's been done on it and the most evidence of effectiveness among the various solutions that have been proposed. What's the data show us about the potential trade-off there? So anybody, anybody with a heart who's paying any attention at all, right, knows that there are a whole lot of really good cops out there who are trying to do the right thing. They got into this not because they were interested in hurting people, because they wanted to do something good for the world and serve the community in the way that they would be naturally gifted to do so. Awesome. And there are a whole lot of those people who are aware and a whole lot of everyone else in the world is aware that that often puts them in danger. So there are two concerns. One is, if people implement these policies, does it put the community at greater danger? Like, do crime rates go up in any way? And second, does it put the police at greater danger? Like, I think there's this instinct in us that says cops lives are like they are in the on the shows and in the movies it's a super dangerous world out there and if they can't draw on fire you know in the snap of a finger without thinking through their you know the police force policy handbook they're all going to die right or a whole lot more of them are going to get hurt and all they're trying to do is protect us like what do you say to that argument does the data speak to that in any way are they at more risk and are our communities at more risk yeah again this is one of those areas where the narrative doesn't match what the data suggests right and so mm -hmm. part of doing this work is understanding what some of those narratives are and in a clear-eyed way interrogating them right because you know if i liken this to the nra and the good guy with the gun narrative where that's one of those narratives where everybody's heard it Everybody's heard this idea that if more people had guns, if, if only there was a good guy with a gun on the scene there, that mass shooting wouldn't have happened. If only more people had guns and stronger guns and AR-15s, that somehow we would be safer. Um, and again, like, you know, the research is really clear that that's actually couldn't be further from the truth. But it's it has power. Everybody's heard it. It gets used. I mean, it really blocks legislation like this is a narrative that has stopped us as a country from solving gun violence. And in police violence, there are a set of narratives that operate the same way. Um, and it's really two narratives. It's like a script. The first narrative is that if we restrict or hold the police more accountable in any way, that it will prevent them from effectively keeping people safe. That's the narrative. Now, there's no evidence that that's true. There, again, you know, there, we can look at many cities. I can point out many cities that have reduced police violence substantially without crime going up. Um, you look at Oakland. I mean, Oakland, California has reduced police shootings, both fatal and non-fatal, by 90%, 90% wow. over the past five or six years. And crime rates have stayed pretty much the same. Like the crime, the police behave differently, um, but it didn't affect or make crime, you know, go out of control. That's not the only example. I mean, most cities have, most large cities have reduced police shootings since 2013. Again, the average is 37% reduction. And crime rates have been pretty stable. I mean, they've gone up a little bit. They went down the next year. They went up a little bit, but they've remained at historic lows relative to, you know, just, you know, the 90s or, or the 80s. 
So that's the crime argument. It doesn't, doesn't really make sense. In fact, there's some emerging literature that suggests it could be the opposite, that police violence could actually lead to crime rates increasing. Uh, because, and you see this happening in, in, in many places where um, there will be a high profile police shooting and it will go viral. Um, it will impact uh, how communities feel about the police, whether the communities feel comfortable calling the police um, to resolve whatever conflict they're experiencing. And you'll see, you know, soon thereafter, we saw this in 2015, they coined it the Ferguson effect, although that was really um, disingenuous, I think, in the way that it was framed. Um, and now we also saw it in the context of um, the George Floyd protests, um, where there was a, a brief but you know, fairly moderate increase in crime rates, um, particularly in cities that had um, high-profile police shootings and a lot of protests. And so researchers looked at that, and, they, and some researchers assumed um, that the direction of, of causality or the direction of causation was actually that it was the protests leading to, and the distrust of the police leading to more crime. That was like the, what the Ferguson effect had suggested. And that if only communities didn't protest as much, didn't complain as much about this injustice, that somehow they would be safer. But it turns out that the direction of causality could be exactly the reverse. And we've seen some places where the police shooting event itself, the incident of police violence, so destabilizes a community that it can actually increase crime. Um, and, you know, there's a study that looked at Milwaukee, for example, this profile in the New York Times, um, and they found that after a high-profile incident of police violence, there's a non-fatal beating of a Black man in Milwaukee, after communities became aware of that incident, they, the calls to the police, particularly in Black neighborhoods, dropped dramatically. Soon thereafter, there was an increase in crime. And so they reasoned that the drop in calls was because of the police violence. The police didn't want to call, or, or communities didn't want to call the police, knowing that that same off, group of officers who were on video uh, committing an injustice had not been removed from the force. They could be the officer responding to that 911 call. And even if it wasn't, the department as a whole had just demonstrated that they were capable of causing this kind of violence. And so communities found another way of resolving those conflicts. Instead of calling the police, they could have uh, called, you know, a, a, a brother or, you know, an, an uncle or somebody in the community who could deal with this conflict who wasn't a police officer. And of course, that could then lead to violence, right? That could lead to community violence because folks didn't have an alternative. There were no resourced, uh, well-resourced and effectively trained and wide, widely known alternative hotlines to call if you didn't want a police officer to show up, but you did want to be safe. Um, and I think that is um, what that suggests is that police violence can actually destabilize communities and exacerbate crime, that the police can actually contribute to increases in crime because they are acting in violent ways. And that means the solution is actually to stop police violence and not to stop protesting about it. And so, so that's, that's the crime argument. I'm happy to dive into the police danger argument because I know that's that was the second part of it, but uh, you might have some questions. Yeah, I just wanted to, I just wanted to jump in to share an analogy in the in the psychology world. There's there's an interesting parallel where lots of people who were raised with with corporal punishment go on to parent in that way. They spank their kids. Um, they do so believing that it will control bad behavior, 
And the data doesn't actually show that that's what it does. It act, tends to increase the bad behavior quite a lot, and it reduces relational trust enormously. And the kids tend to get in a whole lot more trouble because they don't trust their parents when they're in trouble to involve them because they're afraid they'll get beaten. Exactly, exactly. So, it, I mean, it's an incredible parallel to exactly this problem. Yeah, exactly. So go on to talk about, like, so there are good cops in the world out there, and we don't want them getting hurt either. So how does it work out there? Yeah, so on that front, the, it's a similar uh, story. So, um, you know, the narrative is that the police need, if you restrict the use of force policy, if you create a stronger accountability structure that disciplines more officers for misconduct, that it will have a sort of chilling effect on the police force and they will uh, not have all of the sort of tools at their repertoire, at their disposal to defend themselves from attacks. That's sort of the argument that if the police can't choke somebody in this incident, that somehow it will allow that person to get the better of them and overcome them in a fight. Now, there's zero evidence. I just want to reiterate, there is zero evidence to support that narrative. It is ubiquitous. It is all over the place. You will see high profile politicians and police union officials um, give voice to this narrative. It's there is simply not a single study, not a single piece of research anywhere um, that supports that conclusion. In fact, the existing body of literature is, you know, there, again, the research, there's a lot more research that needs to be done on all of these issues. But the research we have uh, suggests that it's actually the places that have the most restrictive policies on the police that are the safest, not only for community members, because the use of force rates are lower, less likely to be killed by the police, but also the safest for officers. And part of the reason or the reasoning behind this is that if the police are required, instead of jumping into a situation and immediately using force, immediately escalating to physical force, including deadly force, the policy requires that they use de-escalation instead, that they create time and space between themselves and the subject, um, that they try to verbalize and communicate and talk that person down um, rather than threaten or use force against them. Um, and by doing that, that that could actually keep the officer safer too, because essentially what we're talking about, you know, use of force is this technical term. We're talking about a fight, right? We're talking about the police are punching, kicking, using a taser against shooting somebody. And that person is probably defending themselves uh, as well, right? And so you have a situation where instead of all of that, the policy can actually require officers to de-escalate those situations, to not, not use any physical force at all. And as a consequence, officers are less likely to be in situations where they actually have a high probability of getting injured too. So this is a win-win for the police and for communities. Um, and that's what's made this so powerful. One of the reasons why so many cities have begun to adopt these policies is because one, they're common sense. You know, it's very hard to argue that the police shouldn't be required to use, you know, non-lethal force when possible instead of deadly force. Like that is very common sense. Like deadly force sh should be a last resort, not a first. And the policy should reflect that. Um, it's not, you know, a wild or radical to say, um, that, you know, the police should, when possible, use de-escalation tactics, that the police should use a, use warnings um, instead of just immediately using force, you know, um, that the police shouldn't choke people to death. Um, and there's not a whole lot of people saying, you know, the police should do these things. It's just that until now, there hadn't been that critical mass of pressure to force the police to actually change the policy. Um, and until now, we haven't had the data uh, to actually overcome some of the narratives that they've used to shut those efforts down. 
Um, and I think part of the that finding around offices being safer too, um, one of the reasons why that's so important is it actually um, takes away probably the most powerful argument that they've had to resist change up to this point. That makes a whole lot of sense. Now, why why did the data need to get involved at all? Why haven't the departments reduced their own violence or the criminal justice system itself uh, reduced this violence? Like what happens when when a cop goes beyond, I mean, uses force beyond what is reasonable or fair and, and verges into crime, right? When they're hurting somebody way beyond what's necessary and anyone can see it. What t- typically happens then in the courts or in the, in the police departments themselves? So typically nothing happens. And that's the problem, right? When an officer commits misconduct, uh, engages in you know, use of force, even deadly force, so, so the data suggests that in 98, between 98 and 99% of cases, no officers are charged with a crime after they've killed somebody. Any crime, not just murder, any crime. Um, so in only point, between 0.3 and 0.5% of cases, okay, so we're talking about one in every 300 people killed by the police or more, an officer is convicted of a crime uh, for killing somebody. So what that means is that functionally, the criminal justice system in almost all cases, 98% plus, does not prosecute officers for killing people. It is extremely, extremely rare. That is also true when they kill unarmed people. Um, it is, it, you know, the, it's still, you know, 90% plus. And so what that means is that we really don't see any accountability. I mean, there are a few cases, you know, that have been very high profile, where officers have been charged and convicted, but those are such an aberration from the norm that no officer would reasonably expect after killing somebody to get charged with a crime, regardless of how egregious it was. Now, there are some things that have helped, you know, the existence of video evidence has increased slightly the number of officers who've been charged. It hasn't really increased conviction rates, um, but it increased slightly the number of officers who've been charged. Um, the places where officers are charged tend to be places that are uh, more progressive. They tend to have black prosecutors. Um, and there are only a handful of places across the country that have black elected prosecutors at the local level. Um, I think that nationwide, the data suggests is a New York Times investigation something like 95% of all elected prosecutors are white. And, you know, so you can imagine 5% are people of color and then an even smaller proportion are black prosecutors. Um, But those black prosecutors are responsible for a huge proportion of cases where officers are charged. Almost half of all cases where officers are charged with a crime is a black prosecutor. So, so, so the prosecutor matters. The law matters. The law around deadly force differs by state. and, And, you know, again, there are some states like, um, in Tennessee and Iowa, and most recently in California, if they pass legislation that require officers to exhaust every alternative available to them prior to using deadly force as a matter of law. If they don't do that, they can be charged with a crime, with murder. But it's only a handful of states, it's four or five states that have that as a statute. And every other state is much more difficult to charge an officer because even if you could prove that the officer, let's say, could have backed up and used de-escalation or used a taser instead of a gun, that by itself isn't proof of a crime because it, they weren't required by law to use those alternatives. You know, it's very rare for an officer to be charged. It's more likely in some places than others, but by and large, it's very rare. So in the absence of that, it is the sort of administrative accountability system, which is the only real system uh, where officers tend can be disciplined or fired for misconduct. And, you know, when you look at the data there, it doesn't, the picture isn't much better. Um, only about 7% 
uh, or let me repeat that, only about 8% of all uh, excessive force allegations against officers nationwide result in an officer being disciplined, only about 8%. So, um, so again, you know, the vast majority of cases, regardless of whether you're in the sort of criminal legal system or the administrative system, the vast majority of cases officers are not held accountable. Um, and that's why you get these officers, you know, like uh, Derek Chauvin in um, Minneapolis who killed George Floyd, who had this track record of misconduct and had never been removed from the force. Um, and that's part of the problem. Yeah, clearly part of the problem. So when you put all of this together, like what is the data showing us does work? Where should we be headed? And is that a piece of, of what, you know, has come to be known as defunding the police, which I would argue has got a bit of a marketing problem already. Like just the phrase from the get-go seems to shut a lot of minds right down. But tell us like what works, what's the win-win-win for the community, for the police force, for, for the taxpayer, for that matter, like what works? So um, great question. And you know, I'll preface this by saying, you know, there's a lot that we still need to learn. Um, you know, we've only had the data now for, you know, seven, in fact, maybe five years of data collection. But again, you have to have a lot of years to start establishing trend lines, to start understanding what's an aberration, what's the norm. So we're still pretty early on in this process. But I will say that there are a set of things that we know can make a difference that can save lives. You know, more restrictive use of force policies, one of those areas stronger accountability structures. And so by that, I mean, we are establishing uh, the ability when an officer commits misconduct to remove that officer from the force, a very straightforward thing. Um, But it turns out that that is, as I said, extremely rare and that there are a set of policies that need to be changed to make that possible in in a sort of reliable way. Um, So for example, We did an analysis of uh, 730 police union contracts at the city level. So for over, for nearly 600 cities across the country, each city has its own police union contract that they sign with the local police union and the city leadership. Some cities have multiple contracts. Some cities only have one. That's why there's more, the 731 contracts in about 600 cities. But when we read through those contracts, legal experts, what we learned was that that's where the accountability structure of the police department is decided. And that in those contracts, they had already agreed to and institutionalized these rules that made it almost impossible to hold an officer accountable for misconduct. So in many places, including California, by the way, because of state law um, that sort of took what's in the contracts and adopted it at the state level, um, if you file a complaint of misconduct against an officer, And the police department drags its feet and takes longer than a year to complete the investigation into the incident. No officers can be disciplined. So, you know, you can imagine the police conduct, they they lead the investigation. They have complete control over when they open the investigation, how long it takes, how it's investigated, when it's closed, all of that. And if they just take it beyond the 365th day, there can be zero discipline as a matter of state law for those, those officers, regardless of what actually is found in the investigation. So there could be a video, it could be obvious they committed the misconduct, it could be deadly force, doesn't matter as long because of those contracts and because of those state laws. You know, that's California. It's even worse in some places. So um, in Louisiana, it's 90 days. In some cities, it is 60 days. So, you know, if you told the police that they had to complete a criminal investigation into any crime within 60 days, they would tell you there's no way that they could solve any crimes. 
And yet, if you report an officer for these types of things, you know, it's, it's actually a completely different set of rules um, that make it almost impossible to hold those officers accountable, that they would never agree to for anybody else to be subject to those rules. You know, that is, that's one example. There are a host of others. You look at um, erasing records of misconduct. So that is, the officer doesn't get disciplined in the first place because of that one rule, uh, if it takes longer than a year. In some places, the contract says, even if the officer does get disciplined, those disciplinary records have to be destroyed within a certain period of time. So in Chicago, in their contracts at five years, all records have to be destroyed after five years, regardless of how serious. In Baton Rouge, Louisiana, it is between 18 months and five years, depending on the seriousness of the offense. So it literally says in their city's contract that you know, at the 18-month mark for uh, sustained complaints, the complaints where they found the officer committed misconduct um, that resulted in you know, verbal reprimands, all records have to be erased after 18 months. If it is a sustained complaint of sexual assault or sexual battery, five years, all records have to be destroyed. So they're literally agreeing to destroy all the evidence of the officer's record. And then as, as you know, when it comes time to discipline those officers in a future case, those investigators, if they can't show that that officer had a record of misconduct, you know, it is hard enough to discipline an officer in general. If they can't establish that that was a pattern of misconduct, it becomes nearly impossible to remove that officer from the force. You know, you, you have things like progressive discipline where on your first offense, you can't be fired. Even if it is, you know, pretty egregious, um, you can't be fired. You have to have a pattern. And you can't establish those patterns if you are, one, not even disciplining officers in the first place after a certain amount of time. And two, if you're erasing the records of when you did discipline the officers. It just creates an entirely different structure that makes it really hard to discipline the officers. So that's a long way of saying that these things are structural, right? That this is not get a new police chief and suddenly the officers are going to be held accountable. Even with the, ni- the, the nicest police chief in the world, if the records are getting destroyed, it's a matter of policy. They don't have you know, discretion over that until the city renegotiates that contract and both the city and the police union agree to a new contract. I mean, that's the change that has to happen at the structural level to deal with some of these broader outcomes that we're seeing. This is so eye-opening to, to understand. I want to shift to what it's like to be you in this process, right? So like on this particular podcast, we're really interested in the change process. Like it's, it's not the way we think it would work most of the time. You've already mentioned several versions of this right now. Like, how intriguing is it that force doesn't actually reduce force? Violence doesn't reduce violence. That the calmer and more peaceful police are, the less the bad guys turn into bad behavior, uh, right? Like, that's fascinating in itself and paradoxical. But it's also really interesting to hear what you're up to. You're, in effect, using data to hold up a mirror. Right. I mean, I could explain to my buddy Pete all day long that there's something on Pete's face and may never get that thing off of there. If I look the mirror, I rarely just say more than that for Pete to finally realize he's still got lunch on his face. Right. You're doing this in effect, in effect, using data and you're doing it on many levels of this. Right. It's it's what's really happening out there on the streets. It's what's happening procedurally and um, how policy affect that. It's looking at accountability and looking at union contracts. And the data itself again and again is showing what's really happening. But 
you're not just collecting all this data and then occasionally coming on podcasts. Like this is putting you in rooms with people who make big decisions. Tell us a little bit about that and what it's like. It's really been a a wild uh, journey. This isn't like how I, you know, thought, this isn't what I thought I'd be doing, right? Like my life changed on August 9th. Um, like focus on this issue. This is what I care about. This impacts me like personally, um, like walking down the street. This impacts people who look like me. This impacts our country. But it's not like what I thought I would be doing. And I think what is, what has been wild about this is just realizing that nobody's going to do it unless we do it for ourselves. Um, that we can't wait for permission to solve the problems that are right in front of our face. So, you know, I'm not a tenured professor. I'm like not, you know, I'm, I'm 30 years old. I haven't been doing this for 50 years. You know, I'm not a state senator or, you know, any of that. But the reality is none of those other people built the database or like got in and like solved this problem in the way that it needed to up until that point. And somebody had to do it. Um, and it's just about how do we figure out a way to do what hasn't been done before and how do we make meaning out of it? How do we make a difference in the world? Um, and it's difficult also from the perspective of being both a data scientist and an advocate because like those, you know, this is, we, we have to be clear about what the data says, what it doesn't say. We have to be accurate and impartial, but also we have to have a position, right? I think that the position is we believe that people shouldn't be getting killed by the police. And we're going to work backwards to figure out how to stop that from happening. And whatever the data suggests can get us there, that is where we can go. Um, but this idea that, you know, we can't take a position on whether or not people should be getting murdered, I think is is sort of wild. So, so, so it's been this, this difficult interplay of like conducting research and having influence in academic circles, you know, moving forward a research agenda that has, has led to scholarship in academic circles. So the Mapping Police Violence Database has been cited over a thousand times in academic circles. Uh, it has been the, the data source used in many foundational pieces of academic research. So, you know, there have been a, there's a finding out of Boston University uh, a few years ago that the places that had higher rates of police violence um, also that there was a significant relationship between rates of police violence and levels of structural racism. So, uh, so things like residential segregation. Um, so beginning to draw sort of these broader connections between not only sort of the police specifically, but the broader context of how uh, of, of, a, of a city or a, a state um, and broader sort of uh, indicators of inequality and racism that could be contributing to creating the conditions for police violence. Um, so again, I think that there, you know, that was one of many studies that have been produced since then, but helping to produce some of that, that research uh, that, and to do that, you have to be, the data has to be sound. It has to be done transparently. Everything has to be checked off. Like people, you, you can't, just say it's true because you're saying it, right? So, so part of this has been how to do this work without coming into it from a place of privilege from the perspective of like institutional power. So like just because we say something's true doesn't mean it's true. Um, we're not, you know, Harvard University producing the study here. And just because Harvard University people believe it, we actually have to build that credibility, build that trust. And that's what we've done by uh, making all the data public, um, making all of the visualizations accessible and, and um, dynamic and interactive so people can play with the data. They can see the source data. 
and making that process open. So people have suggestions, we're incorporating those suggestions. So that's been one thing. Uh, also, I think on a personal level, what has been, it's been really hard, right? I think, you know, this is not, you know, I talk a lot about numbers, I talk about trends. Um, and part of that, I think, you know, at a, on a personal level, it is easier for me to talk about numbers and trends um, than to, to really dive deeper into like what we're talking about here. Because, I mean, this is, we're talking about people who were killed by the police. We're talking about people who had families, um, people who had kids, people who were, you know, minding their business in the middle of the day in some cases and the police show up and, and murder them. Um, and we see these videos, we, you know, and, and so on a personal level, it has been really difficult to compile the data um, because it's not just data. And so, uh, you know, one of the first sort of pages that we lost at Mapping Police Violence uh, is a page of unarmed people killed by the police. And these are profiles of unarmed people killed by the police in the year. So the process of compiling that data was literally me going through and collecting these stories um, for, you know, about a hundred people in a given year. I mean, it's, it's a lot of people in, in a, who are unarmed and killed by the police and, and you're just collecting these stories and, you know, what happened to them, including images, oftentimes images of their families, um, you know, information that's posted on obituaries. And it's really hard because you're, see, you're seeing yourself in people that were murdered unjustifiably. And it's, it's hard not to get sort of down in the work. And what keeps me hopeful is that, that, you know, again, I can look at these trends and I can see places that are getting better. I, I don't feel like we are permanently stuck in this world of having to worry, um, you know, every time you go outside. I think that, you know, looking again at places like Oakland, you know, police shootings down 90%. Um, looking at, you know, on the reducing overall police contact and arrests, you know, New York City down 62% arrests for low-level offenses. Places like Seattle and San Francisco, you know, where even Columbus, Ohio, where drug possession arrests are almost at zero. Like we're talking about, um, you know, compared to other cities, there are places that have almost fully ended the drug war. So there are things that like people would say are impossible or unrealistic or radical that could never happen that are happening in cities that I can name, that I'm tracking, that I'm looking at and monitoring every day. I think that is, that gives me hope because I think that shows that if we can just diagnose what they did, uh, we can just unpack those ingredients um, and give voice to them in, model policy language in equipping local organizers with the talking points and the data to make the case for those things, equipping legislators with the information they need to adopt them, um, debunking some of those narratives that have prevented us from making progress. If we can continue to do that work, I think we can build on those successes and achieve substantial reductions uh, in police violence nationwide. And, and ultimately, we're talking about saving lives. I mean, this project has put you in rooms, not just with police departments around the country, but city officials, I believe the Biden campaign um, and more. Like, I'm wondering, A, what that's like. I mean, it must be, I, I would imagine the heart rate's a little high when you're, you know, in your late 20s and you're walking in to talk with some of these people. And this is this is your chance to make a case for something nobody else has the data to make a case for. Like, you're the guy. That's got to be pretty incredible. And in particular, I would love to hear a story of a place where somebody got it. Like somebody like you could see the eyebrows go up and then sit back and go, damn, this would be really good to use. Right? Yeah. yeah. On a personal level, it's been, um, it's been wild to sort of suddenly be in, in conversations that I didn't think I would be in. Um, and to be the person who, like, you, you have to be right every time. Um, you know, in, in, it, this is really high level, high stakes. And, you know, I've met with 
you know, in the 2016 campaign, I met with uh, Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders and Governor O'Malley. In the 2020 campaign, met with Kamala Harris and uh, Cory Booker and Biden's team, Julian Castro, you know, a, a host of folks, Elizabeth Warren, uh, her team. Uh, and, you know, what, what is clear is that people are hungry for solutions and that also um, there's a lot of work that needs to be done helping to move the conversation into places um, that policymakers haven't been in yet. Um, so, so I'll give you an example. You know, you look at what many of the Democratic candidates uh, in the primaries proposed around uh, the Department of Justice's pattern and practice investigations. Um, so the Department of Justice and the Obama administration stepped up its investigations of local police departments that they thought had uh, what they call a pattern of practice of unconstitutional policing. And, you know, under the Obama administration, they only had the resources to investigate three police departments a year. So again, 18,000 departments across the country. The entire U.S. Department of Justice has appropriated the resources to investigate three of them a year. So really not a scalable solution there. But what is interesting about it is, you know, you had many candidates initially begin to propose things like, you know, we want to double the number of investigations by the Department of Justice. And then some people would say triple. I think Kamala Harris said double and then Bernie said triple. And it became this thing like we want to double or triple. Like, what's the right balance? And I'm looking at this from a data perspective. I'm like, none of those are going to be enough. Like we are talking about six investigations or nine out of 18,000. Like you're not even going to scratch the surface. Um, and so in those rooms, what I would do is show that, that data, right? And also show the data that, that we compiled, which actually painted a picture of policing all across the country. And what that allowed for is us to set a different framework to say, what if instead of just cherry picking a few departments based on, you know, what's in the news um, or where the next uprising is, what we are going to do instead is create a framework that says, using the data that is already out there, um, we can establish thresholds where if a police department is a, above, you know, let's say they're in the top 10% in terms of the highest rates of police violence that year, that should trigger an automatic investigation by the Department of Justice. And they should be resourced with whatever amount of resources they need to meet that level of need in the system. And that because we have the data, we can be able to identify those departments. Um, because we also know from data that Vice News compiled on police shootings, we know that the places that are investigated by the Department of Justice have about 25% fewer police shootings after those investigations in the department that are not. Um, so we think they can make a difference, these investigations. So the investigations can make a difference. And um, there's a way to scale them in a data-driven way that we could automatically intervene, intervene in places across the country that could just immediately um, deal with where this problem is most acute. Um, and that shifted some, some opinions, you know, talking with folks like Kamala Harris and others. That is, I think, where we can move when we're using the data, when we, when we can make all of that information that we already know tangible and real to policymakers um, and publish that information in ways that they can begin to make informed decisions about where to intervene. Um, so, so I think that is, that, that, that's where I hope we can push to like a more systemic solution, like an early intervention system at the national level not just um, you know, within an individual department, but all across the country. And I think the other, you know, to your point about you know, where minds have changed or policymakers have changed their mind, I think one example really stands out that is in my hometown in Orlando. You know, a few years ago, met with the Orlando police chief, the current Orlando police chief at the time, he was the deputy police chief, now he's the police chief. 
and went over the data for police violence in Orlando, showed the information demonstrating that Orlando has the second highest rate of killings by police in the entire country among uh, the hundred largest cities. As soon as I made that point, he pushed back with, um, with their narrative. So, you know, in addition to the national narratives, sometimes in individual cities, they have their own explanations for why the numbers look the way they do. And he said, you know, we think that we are using so much force, particularly deadly force in Orlando, because we are a unique city with a lot of tourists. And because we have so many tourists, they are really rowdy. Uh, they get drunk and they go to the bars on the Orange Avenue corridor, um, which is like the main street down the middle of downtown Orlando. And so when you look at our data, a lot of those use of force incidents are along, you know, the, are in the downtown area along this corridor. And we think that, you know, we're just dealing with a unique situation that nobody else has to deal with. And that's why we're using so much force, not because officers are doing anything wrong. Um, and in the moment, there, I was able to, because you, know, you have these charts with all these cities, to compare, make some comparisons. So I said, okay, here's Orlando at the top of the list in terms of police use of force, or deadly force. Now here is uh, New Orleans, and here is Las Vegas. Now, Orlando has multiple times uh, the deadly force rate as New Orleans or Las Vegas does. Um, and you mean to tell me, police chief, that your officers are dealing with more rowdy tourists, more rowdy circumstances um, than police officers on the Las Vegas Strip or on Bourbon Street in New Orleans. Is that your argument? And he's, he couldn't defend that. He immediately realized that his argument just, it didn't work. Um, the data didn't support what he was trying to say. Um, and you could see a light bulb sort of like light up on top of his head, right? Where he's like, you know, I think, I think you're right. And, and we need to consider um, you know, changing the use of force policies and doing some other changes to address. Um, clearly, there's an issue. Um, and lo and behold, now, you know, fast forward um, a few months ago, they, they did. They, they adopted a reformed use of force policy that included many of the recommendations that I proposed. They have begun to propose uh, mental health first responders to particular situations where they police were using force. So, so again, they're beginning to move in a new direction. Um, but you got to really knock down some of those narratives first. Uh, in order to make that possible. That must have been really gratifying. It was it was cool to do it in Orlando. You know, it's it's you know my hometown. Um and you know, never doubt that you can change your circumstances, right? And not just nationally, like in your own city and your own state. Um, you know, you have the power to do it. Find a problem that 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 hits close to home that you care a lot about, um, and figure out how to use your skill set, use your experience to uniquely address it. Um, because I think you can make a difference. Can you Tell us a little bit about this idea of defunding the police. Like, help me understand better, because there's so many people who just at, I mean, it's like from the jump, the minute that phrase drops, they're out, right? Because that just sounds like an absolute recipe to massively increase crime. Now, you've already told us that a whole lot of the policies that involve lower police, in fact, if anything, help crime and certainly don't increase it. And you've got years of data now, though it's still building and it's growing richer and and more helpful and you're able to understand trends better as you go. You've got enough data to say, yeah, that's not what we're seeing at all. What is this idea of defunding the police? And could we please find another phrase for it? Is there another way to talk about this idea? To me, it means we are recognizing the facts. And I think the facts are, are pretty clear on this, that the vast majority of what police are currently doing does not involve keeping people safe from violence. 
And that's a fact. That's not like a random like talking point. And we're using the data that is being collected. The police don't collect, uh, the federal government doesn't collect very good data on police use of force. Um, but, you know, surprisingly, perhaps they collect quite a bit of data on police arrests and on crime. From the same, from 18,000 police departments all across the country every single year in a reliable and consistent way. Um, so, you know, surprise, they can do it if they want to. They've collected that data for several years, for decades now, right? And so in that data, what we see that according to the FBI's Uniform Crime Report database, only about 5% of arrests nationwide are for violent crime, only about 12% are for property crime. And the vast majority of arrests are for low-level offenses. In fact, last year, right? Last year, 2019, despite all of the legalization of marijuana that's happened, uh, police still made more arrests for marijuana possession alone than they made for all violent crimes nationwide combined. Wow. That's what the police are spending the resources doing. A New York Times investigation looked even more broadly than arrests. Arrests are like the more serious police encounters. This is when like, you would expect the police to intervene in a more serious situation. Um, but even just, you know, who it, what are the police responding to? What are the calls they're responding to in general? They found that only about 1%, they looked at a host of big cities that published their 911 calls data. They found that only about 1% of all 911 calls in these cities, and we're talking about cities that have pretty high crime rates in some cases, places like Baltimore, that only about 1% of the calls for service or 911 calls were for violent crime. And only about 4% of what the, a typical officer spends their time doing on a typical shift involves responding to violent crime, 4%. So the police are getting a whole lot of money, a whole lot of resources. Um, I, I think the latest estimate was something like $80 billion a year uh, nationwide. And the vast majority of that money is going towards stopping, in many cases, arresting people for things that are not dangerous to other people. And so I think that is at the core what this conversation is about. Like whatever the, the term we're using about it, uh, I think that at the core, it is a recognition that there's a whole lot of investment going into policing that at best is not solving the problem and at worst is making it worse. And at the same time, there are, there are some alternatives. So um, a study by Patrick Sharkey looked at um, the crime decline over the past several decades nationwide. What he found was that there was a substantial, substantial reduction in crime, both violent crime and uh, property crime, in places that had more community-based organizations that were doing violence prevention or youth development work. And that if we just invest in those community-based alternative approaches that are preventative, uh, crime prevention approaches rather than sort of responding to crime and arresting and incarcerating people, um, that that work uh, actually reduces crime and there's a far better return on investment than investing in more policing and incarceration. Similarly, there are places that, you know, that's sort of the upstream solution where we're looking at preventative. Um, there are places that have, you know, in the moment that you call the police, they have a different response in many cases. So you look at Eugene, Oregon, where, you know, in one in five 911 calls now in that city, they are sending a mental health provider rather than a police officer to the scene. One in five 911 calls. So, you know, again, that can, that's an approach that can be scaled in many cities, uh, in cities across the country. Um, and you're talking about removing from the plate of police one in five calls 
Um, and so the question is, where does that money go? You know, if you remove one in five calls, you know, let's say you cut the budget by, you know, one, one fifth, um, then that fifth should be invested in those mental health providers that could be that alternative response. It should be invested in those community-based organizations that can make more progress in reducing crime. Um, so, so I think defund is a recognition that we actually ought to be, the direction we should be moving is in reducing our investment in policing and increasing our investment in these, frankly, more effective and evidence-based alternatives that don't have these collateral consequences of people being harmed or killed. Um, so I think that's like big picture what we're talking about. Um, I think that that's a, I think it's an evidence-based approach. I think that like that, you know, there's plenty of research as to, um, you know, the efficacy of some of these alternatives. Um, you know, I think that there are some tough questions, you know, as we continue to move in that direction about you know, which calls do we send a police officer, which calls do we send a mental health provider, which calls do we send both, um, you know, uh, in what situations does it make the most sense to start the conversation about alternatives? Um, in what situations is it like a phase two or phase three conversation? We're having the same conversation around incarceration too, right? So we're talking about um, nonviolent drug offenders, right? And a lot of the conversation around, you know, reducing sentencing has about, been about nonviolent drug offenses and, you know, drug possession. We're not talking about sales. And then, you know, you expand the conversation. Well, what about sales? I mean, why are people going to jail for marijuana selling? In some states, in those states, they're making a business out of it that's totally legal. Um, so there's a conversation to be had there. Um, then you sort of, you keep going up the list, right? You go into, um, you know, is incarceration an appropriate response for theft? Um, you know, what if the person was dealing with poverty? You know, how do we, what's the real solution to this situation? Um, so, so again, I think that there, these are tough conversations that are not easy, um, but I think defund is a recognition that we need to be having these conversations and that there are immediate things we can be doing right now that can reduce sort of the overall policing footprint in a way that doesn't at all impact public safety in a negative way. Um, and we should be doing it. It reminds me of the, uh, the wonderful phrase, when your only tool is a hammer, all the world looks like a nail. Exactly. If, if really your only tool as a city is a department of folks who are trained to deal with violent crime, it's hard to show up for a marijuana arrest and not treat it a bit like a violent crime. Exactly. And then each arrest, you know, you mind you, it, the police are authorized to use as much force as they can allege the other person used sort of resisted their arrest, right? So each of those arrests, you know, regardless of what the initial arrest is for, even if it's drug possession, any of those could escalate to deadly force in the same way. And so, um, in fact, there's research that suggests that uh, a crime arrest, only you're only 1.3 times more likely to have police use force when making a violent crime arrest compared to a nonviolent crime arrest. So 1.3 times is not like a substantial increase. It's pretty similar. The fact that you're getting arrested in the first place is really um, what determines your risk of having the police harm or injure you. Um, and if we can reduce some of those arrests for those low-level things, I think that'll make a big difference. And I hear you saying if, if we can have some other tools besides hammers, which are fantastic when you're dealing with a nail, but there are a whole lot of these situations, clearly in Eugene, Oregon, a, f a fifth of them require mental health intervention. Yeah, I, that, that makes more sense. And I appreciate the additional explanation. I guess maybe we'd finish. Mm, I've got so many more things. I could talk to you for hours. Um, I, I'm aware it's November 6th and we're, we're down to you know, probably the last hours of the 2020 election. And it's looking more and more like Biden and Harris will end up taking the White House. And I'm aware that this is just my view. I don't know this for sure, but it seems like, especially under the Trump presidency and maybe just increasingly in the world, it seems like the planet is allergic to data. 
we're scared by science. We're afraid to trust the data that's out there. What is that like for you to be you, the mirror you hold up is one of data? And a lot of people don't care. They don't care that what what's the studies have shown for decades is nonviolent intervention works even better to reduce violence than force. Where do you go with that? First of all, I think that it is, this is going to be a recurring problem. I don't think that we're going to solve this um, skepticism of data anytime soon. If anything, after, you know, what we saw in, in this election with the polling data and the juxtaposition of the what the poll said would happen and um, how the election was sort of managed in, in the sense of, you know, Republicans very much wanted it to look like Trump was ahead uh, for as long as possible in the way that they uh didn't want mail ballots to be counted first in many of these critical states like Pennsylvania. And I think that's bred a lot of skepticism about, about the polls. I mean, people, a lot of Democrats thought that the Democrats would win the Senate and that's looking really tough. And we got to win a uh, double runoff in Georgia. And a lot of Democrats thought that Biden would win, you know, a set of states that he didn't win, like Florida, maybe even North Carolina. So, so again, I think that there's probably going to be just as much, if not more skepticism of data, even with an administration that cares about data. Um, I worry about what that means in general. I mean, particularly in the context of a pandemic where, you know, a willingness to believe in the facts and the science is critical to all of our survival. But I also think that, you know, in the policing and criminal justice space, there's been such a lack of data um, that the existence of data in the space actually does still make a difference. Um, that like there, I mean, literally we're talking about only a small number of people across the country who actually collect and understand and can talk about the data with regard to policing um, and specifically with regard to how to address police use of force and police violence. And so I think the data will always be essential and important in those spaces. There'll always be a space for it. And we need more people who can speak to the data in more places. Um, like it can't be only a handful of people any longer because I can't be in every city across the country and nor should I be. Right. And so I think Part of it is how do we build a deep bench? How do we build capacity to, to uh, make data a bigger part of this conversation, to uh, push back on some of these narratives that, you know, they continue to exist and we have to continue to push back on them. It can't be only a handful of people doing that. So, so I think that there's still, I'm still hopeful about that we can make even more progress with more data in this space in particular. I'm also mindful that there's a lot we still don't know and a lot of data we still can and should collect. So, uh, you know, have been piloting a few uh, efforts to collect data that's never been collected before. So, for example, ran a, a campaign to collect information on uh, people who had recently been arrested to get their story of potential police misconduct that might have happened during those arrests. And this was like a, a really used Facebook and Instagram ads to micro target people who had been arrested. Like we had the data on everybody who'd been arrested in a particular city. Um, and if you logged onto Facebook and were one of those people, you were gonna get our ad and you would fill out the survey. Um, and we collected reports of people who had experienced police misconduct that would have gone unreported otherwise, that you know they didn't come forward and file a formal complaint. Um, nobody had been surveying or asking them about it uh, in any official data collection program. Um, and yet we collected those stories, we collected those incidents. We have names of officers who would have never been named as, as officers who are accused of misconduct without some of this. So, so I think there's a lot we still can do. Um, there's a lot of video evidence that's being collected now that hasn't been collected before. So again, I mean, I'm hopeful, um, but there's a lot of work still to do. Sky's the limit, man. 
Well, I really appreciate your time today, Stan. This is really, really informative and helpful. And I'm, I admire the work you're doing out there greatly. It's a pretty extraordinary example of, of being at the forefront of really important change. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on. All right. We're going to come back in a little while and I'm going to uh, share an experiential exercise that occurred to me over this week of, of listening to Sam's work out there, on, especially on YouTube. Uh, to look at how to apply data collection to our own lives. Thanks. Thank you. Hey, everybody. It's Pete. You doing okay? Settling in? Not easy. This whole conversation is not easy. It's made even harder because my usual safe space here, where I just get to talk at you, is completely violated by Dodge himself. He's here. Shh. He's here. He can hear you. I'm here. <laughs> uh, we wanted to wrap up this conversation with just a, a brief announcement, uh, which I think is really cool. Do you want to? Do you want to do the the unveiling, the big reveal? <laughs> the big reveal. It's just to say we've got a, uh, a uh, an episode that's being released as kind of a bonus uh, for members, which introduces a most fascinating behind-the-scenes character um, in Sam's life, uh, and that is his father. His father, Credo, a Tanzanian gentleman, has a story of change that is extraordinary, absolutely extraordinary. Um, his childhood what brought him to this country, his, um, his success here and the legacy of his incredible kids is an amazing story. And so um, we have had a wonderful conversation with Credo himself um, and are releasing that conversation and, and his beautiful story for, for members to listen to. And we, we absolutely are. If you head back to True Story, dot fm slash the change paradox and then just scroll down a little bit link in the show notes it'll take you to the to the um, uh, membership area um, you know what do you get when you join you get uh, you get more pete right you Can, get a lot more you, pete for you get a for lot more pete. Like, uh, <laughs> you give up one cup of coffee a month you're five <laughs> bucks in and you get a whole lot more of this Pete guy. You, you sure do. What God, you get is out of, out of this whole podcast is that the every other week podcast that you're currently subscribed to uh, becomes a weekly podcast. We do, we, we release the interview that you just heard. And then immediately after that, the next Friday, you get uh, what we call Afterthoughts, which is essentially a second podcast where Dodge and I get together and we unpack what we just, what we just sort of experienced with these interviews. Um, and it's really fun. And it has become an incredible sort of learning opportunity as we get to dive in a little bit more deeply to each of these conversations and, and hopefully, um, hopefully pick apart some lessons that we can that we've each taken away and, and um, how how they've changed our lives. Because I can say, unequivocally, every single one of these conversations has changed my life in some way. Mm, it's beautiful. Yeah. yeah, I love the deep dive aspect of it. I like also just kind of the the personal reactions. I mean, I get to hear kind of how did that person affect my buddy yeah. Pete, and I get to talk a little bit about what was going on for me in that episode. One of the things I really love the most, though, is it's the one place where we get to talk about how does that relate to all of these other change agents that yeah. we're interviewing, right? right. Increasingly, uh, these 
these folks we're talking to are, are diverse and coming from, you know, more and more disparate backgrounds that that um, teach us, that give us kind of new angles on change. And it's it's really cool to hear about um, how they, they're approaching those things. And it's, it's neat to put them together. So uh, again, truestory.fm slash the change paradox. Head over there, sign up, join us, know that you are supporting, you are becoming a critical part of listener-supported podcasting, the show. Uh, it, it's, it, it, it happens at the great support of many people who have signed up already. Uh, and, and we hope that you will jump in as well and help us to continue to learn and grow and give you this show. Thanks so much, everybody. And now Dodge is going to do an exercise for us. I know. Cue the music. Okay, everybody, welcome back. So... Let me say a few things, and then I'm going to tell you what we're going to do as an exercise. If you think about the power of what Samson Youngway brings to the world, it's much like I referred to in the interview, a mirror. And the mirror is data. He doesn't have any authority to go into a police department or to speak with a mayor or to talk to a president-elect, for that matter, and say, this is what you have to do. Nobody has to listen to him. His tool is simply to hold up a mirror of information. And in my experience, that can be really powerful. The thing about information is, though, it's very tempting to ignore when it doesn't fit what feels right. They say that when flying an airplane, the most difficult kind of flying you have to do is one where you fly by instrument. So if you're in a heavy fog bank and you can't see out your windshield, you can't necessarily feel whether you're even right side up or upside down, especially in a small plane. You have to rely on the instruments in front of you and trust that data. And lots of people who are not experienced pilots don't know to do it. And so very often that's where accidents happen. But think about how often that's happening in our own lives. We're making a choice based on feel in the moment. Maybe it's familiar, maybe it's habit, maybe it's a strong craving. And those choices have consequences. Now what's really interesting is often we make choices that have consequences we hate, that we really don't like, that just don't work for us. And yet we make the choice again and again question is, why? Well, one idea is we've learned to ignore the data. We've learned to ignore how poorly this works. We've become terrible historians in just one little area, maybe multiple little areas of our lives. And we stopped noticing how poorly that plan, that course, that pattern works out. For some people, maybe that's drinking. For some of you out there, it is getting elbow deep into a bag of Cheetos. For some, it's yelling at their kids. For others, it's procrastinating. Whatever it is, here's what I want you to do. 
think about an area of your life that isn't working the way you want it to. An area where you have a hunch your behavior just isn't working very well. Whatever it is, I'd like you right now to not commit to changing it. I want you instead to commit only to collecting some data about it. I want you to give yourself one week at the least, maybe two weeks if you're willing, let's say between this and the next interview you hear. And I want you to keep a journal. Don't worry about complete sentences. Don't worry about grammar. You're not going to publish this. I don't care how good the writing is, but I do want you to just write down every time you find yourself doing that particular thing that seems to feel right in the moment that you suspect might not work very well. I want you to write down all of them. So maybe how many drinks you had that day, or how many cookies, or how many outbursts you witnessed that day. Write that down. If you're willing and you can, go a little deeper. What feeling drove that behavior that time? What narrative was in your mind? That is, what story were you telling yourself that let you keep going? Or that helped you ignore the last time you regretted doing this very same thing? If you can and you want to, go a little further and write down what were the results the next day or that day. And are you noticing, are you happy with the outcome over time? Now again, I don't want you to even consider changing this, unless it's truly dangerous for yourself or somebody else. For right now, I want you to just collect data. Let me tell you of one story before we close about a woman I asked to do this. Many years ago, I was actually a graduate student. I encountered somebody who is to this day probably as as cruel in her self-criticism as anyone I'd ever met and have met since. And she couldn't stop. It was just compulsive. It was just ravage, ravaging of self, just sort of a a savage self-attack. So I asked her to do me a favor. I handed her a small cassette recorder, because that's what we used back then, sorry. And I said, all I want you to do is every time you hear a self-critical thought, please don't fight with it. Please don't shame yourself. Please don't try to stop it. Just turn on this recorder and record that on the tape and then hit stop. And when the next one comes up, record that too. When the next one comes up, record that too. Just do that for a week and bring it back to me next time. So to her credit, she did. When she brought it back, we listened to it together. It was the most brutal spewing of just self-cruelty you can imagine and she heard that and her face fell over time and by the time it finished she just burst into tears and she stopped it was the last she did that so i really want you to give yourself a chance to be your own mirror to keep a journal just keeping track of something you're not sure you want to change yet and see what happens thanks See you next time.